1: New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. BeautyCounter.com/Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show.
0: Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 103 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen?
2: I am fabulous, and I have a very interesting story I would like to share.
0: Oh, please do. It's a ketosis
2: story and using the strips. You know, I don't measure my ketones. And we've talked before about how over time as your body is more and more efficient at using ketones, you'll have fewer ketones in your urine, fewer to measure in your blood, that sort of thing, because your body's using them up. So, you know, I'm not a fan of testing really just because, it confuses a lot of people. If you've been doing intermittent fasting for a long time, you may be like, "Oh, I'm going to test my ketones." Then you'll get a negative, and you're like, "Wait, you know how did I get a negative?" Y'all know I went on the cruise and ate, drank, and was merry on the cruise. I had a great time. Totally refilled my glycogen stores. Dragged around for a few days after I got back. Totally knew I was not in ketosis. I could I could feel it. You know, I know how I feel when I'm in ketosis. So. Maybe five, six days, something like that after I got back. It was after we had recorded the last podcast. But I all of a sudden one day had like this amazing like, okay, I'm back. Like I could very solidly feel I was in ketosis. I had the ketosis breath like even more than usual. And I was on hour 21 of a clean fast. And I just happened to have some strips that Dr. Kabeca sent She has these strips that she uses to measure your pH plus your ketone levels. Did she send some of those strips to you, Melanie? Yes, she did. So I had them. They just happened to be sitting there. I'm like, all right. Well, last night I had rice and bread and wine and margaritas, and I'm at hour 21, and I'm really getting this you know, strong ketosis feeling. I'm going to whip out these strips that she sent that I just happened to have, and I'm going to test using them. I wasn't expecting to see anything because, you know, What we always say about those strips is the longer you've been in and out of ketosis, the less you're likely to waste in your urine. So I used the little strip. Oh my gosh, I got a really dark ketone reading and I was nicely alkaline. You know, she says that's one of our goals. We want to be in the alkaline state. So I was really excited. And what's interesting is though, I've repeated the experiment a few times as time has gone on. And the, the ketone levels went down every single day. So I think it was just something that happened because I had not been in ketosis. And then I was like ramping back up again. And so I suddenly had like excess. But it was fascinating. You know, 21 hours fasted after having all the carbs the night before. And I got a really, really strong result
0: on the urine strip. So you are Dr. Quebecca approved. Well, yeah.
2: Well, it was fascinating. And again, like I said, I don't want people to think they should run out and start getting strips and measuring ketones because everything I've read and seen about this is that over time, our bodies are not going to excrete as many, especially in our urine. And so the strips are not effective. But it just, I don't know what inspired me to test because I'm, you know, I'm (laughs) usually testing. Since then, like I said, I've tested and I've gotten just a little tiny, tiny pink on them, but it was just, there it was very strong that one day. And I think it was my body shifting back over and just getting right back into it after the cruise. It took me a while to
0: ramp it back up. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. And I was talking to you. I, I mean, I rarely ever register ketones on the few times that I've checked, not with the urine strips, but with the the Keto Mojo, the blood yeah. blood testing, even. Except when I do really intense MCT oil and then it shoots through the roof. So I don't know if it's because I'm, you know, basically using all ketones I'm making. I think so. I really think that's true. I did a lot of studying
2: after we had the the keto mojo guy. Well, tell me his name again.
0: Dorian Grinnell.
2: Yes. After we had him on the podcast, he was great. And I enjoyed talking to him, and I got a keto mojo, and then I started testing, and I was really surprised that the level was lower than I thought it should be. So I started doing a lot of reading about it, and it it really does seem that the people who have been – let's say someone's been just doing keto. They're totally doing the keto diet, and, you know, therefore they're eating, you know, the high-fat foods all the time. They find their blood ketones go down over time, and so – it just makes sense. Our bodies become more efficient at using them, and we don't have as many you know, like hanging around. I even have a wonderful graph. I can't remember the article, but I took a screenshot of it that shows that the more healthy our metabolisms, the fewer ketones and less blood glucose you'll have just floating around all the time. I don't think I explained that very well at all. But we, we want to see low blood glucose and low ketones as a sign of great metabolic health. Maybe I
0: said it better. Exactly. That makes sense. Basically, yeah, I was going to say fewer free energy substrates. Because there's not this excess energy running around in the bloodstream. It's being used efficiently by the body. Right. That was the whole
2: point of the graph or the diagram that went with this article. I can't remember what the article was. I just I took a screenshot and saved that image because it was like a light bulb went off. It's like, oh, you know, we think we're supposed to have high levels that that's, you know, something we're shooting for. But really,
0: no, <laughs>
2: we don't want to have all this all the time. So it was, it was interesting.
0: Yeah, it actually reminds me. So I was listening to Ben Greenfield on his podcast. He had two really excellent interviews that I wanted to mention on here. And I also put them on the, um, if you have the Himalaya app, if you follow the intermittent fasting podcast, Stuff We Like playlist, I put the episodes on there. The first one, which doesn't really relate to what we're talking about right now, but it does a little bit. um, He interviewed Jack Dorsey, who is one of the founders of Twitter. The episode was all about Jack Dorsey's lifestyle and how he manages stress and how he, you know, does all that he does. But guess what type of diet he follows? Intermittent fasting? It was crazy. He literally follows the exact diet I do. Fascinating. (laughs) At the end, they were talking about intermittent fasting, and he was saying that he basically does an evening window that he eats like you know meat, fish, vegetables. I mean, it sounded very like paleo in nature. And then he said he has wine. I was like, "Well, that's what one wine." He's pretty much one wine. (laughs) I know. And he was and he was saying how like how it was easier because he's single and so he can doesn't have to worry about other people and stuff and how it might change if he was in a relationship. But I was like, well, you know, you could find somebody like me and And we'd be good. (laughs) But um, no, it was funny. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then the second episode, which speaks to what we were just speaking about, was and I haven't finished listening to it, but um, Ben Greenfield's most recent episode was interviewing Dr. Mercola and, oh my goodness, Jen, fascinating. Oh, I bet. And I don't want this to come off wrong, but I feel like Dr. McCullough, he's such a big name that people might not appreciate the depth of his knowledge. Does that make sense? Such a well-known name that I think people kind of write him off sometimes. Right.
2: I know what you mean. They'll latch on to something that they think is not good advice, and they're like, oh, he's crazy. But I think I've I've learned a lot from him.
0: I think people see a lot of these, these figures as, oh, they're just, you know, health in general. So they just kind of post all this stuff, but there's not really any depth to it. Or they might not take them seriously, I think would be the way to phrase that. He is very, very intense. I didn't realize. <laughs>
2: I, think he's, I think he's a really, really, really smart guy. Yeah. And so I just know that sometimes some of the things he said have been taken as controversial. And so because he's so high profile and also controversial, then people will just pick things apart and then decide he's not, you know, not trustworthy at all. And I, I've really always enjoyed reading what he has to say.
0: Yeah, me too. Um, Side note, he has a lot of really good articles on like chelation and heavy metals and things like that. So basically the podcast is all about fasting and ketosis and everything. And they go into really really deep detail on like autophagy like on levels i had not even <laughs> really heard before so it's it's really really fascinating but the reason i just thought of it was dr marcola was saying for example that you know a lot of people on super low carb diets will have high fasting blood sugar and that ironically if they add in you know a little bit of fruit or a little bit of carbs, it raises insulin, which actually ironically lowers their blood sugar because then they're they're shuttling in that excess glucose. It just made me think of that, which was like an interesting little fact.
2: I wonder if he's just saying that that like at first like when you first start you know because we know about the dawn effect and how when you first start you know when you're fasting and your glycogen, your liver's stuffed with glycogen it will cause people to have high blood glucose. This was not about fasting. It was about low-carb diets. But still, same thing. Same thing. Your body moves it out of the liver. The duration, I guess, is my question. Does it happen the whole time? I wouldn't think so. Well,
0: I think sort of. Because I think what he was speaking to is something I experienced is that sometimes people on chronic low-carb diets will have chronically elevated blood sugar. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because what they were talking about was the concept of, People will say that low carb diets create insulin resistance because of how the body handles small bits of carbs just based on when you're in a low carb state. That's what, where the conversation was coming from. It was kind of like an aside, but he was saying that, you know, people on low carb diets might have high blood sugar. And if they just add in a little bit of fruit or a little bit of carbs, they would actually experience a lower blood sugar because they would be raising insulin, which would be lowering that blood sugar. And that's something I experienced historically. The reason I'm saying it might be a longer timeline is I know when I did low carb for a very long time, every time I got my blood glucose measured, like at the doctor or whatever, it was always high. Like it was, it was always like in the, um, usually around a hundred. And that would be like when I was on low carb, like I was not having carbs at all.
2: Where's it coming from? Protein turning? I don't know.
0: Yes. Well, and then just really quick, but now that I have more carbs, my blood sugars are much lower, which um is very interesting. So now yeah. my fasting blood sugar is usually actually in the seventies or occasionally very lower eighties, but usually actually usually the seventies, but Oh, you're saying, where's it coming from? Yeah. Gluconeogenesis, yeah,
2: I I guess I'm so just thinking about fasting all the time and forget that there are people who eat low carb all day. <laughs> right. There are people who eat low carb all day long and and then you know the fasting is going to really lower everything. Yeah. You know once we clear out the glycogen and we're not taking in any nutrients during the
0: fast, we should be in a low state of all of it, right? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, like I said, I haven't finished listening to that whole episode, but man, it's fascinating. I would be interested to see what you think, Jen, because he does have his new <laughs> his new like autophagy tea, which I had heard mentioned on some other podcasts as well. So um, yeah, I know. I, I would be interested in that, to hear what he had to say. Yeah, because he basically went into the science of all of these different plant compounds that really boost autophagy. And so he's created some sort of tea that is made from all of these things. Well, you know, even coffee does that, right? So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. this was things like, I'm trying to remember what it was. One of them was like, I think it's used actually for weight loss a lot of times, but he said it was great for- Carcinia, Yeah, yeah. He was saying that was like really actually epic for autophagy. They went to a tangent about like amino acids and breaking the fast and things like that. So um, yeah, because Mercola was like amino acids, like no. And Ben Greenfield was- saying that maybe it was just leucine that mattered, but Mercola was like, no, like amino acids are going to. Well, good. I'm glad to hear him confirm that because that's what I've always interpreted as well.
2: Oh, I found the graph, by the way, and it's that I was trying to explain. Mm-hmm. I pulled it up and the, the text, again, I'm sorry, I don't have a citation. I don't know where I got it. I just took a screenshot. I wish I'd had a shot of the source, but it says, it appears from this data that people who are metabolically healthy tend to have lower blood glucose and lower ketone values, even if they are following a ketogenic diet. If your goal is to use body fat for fuel, then you will want to be further to the left of this chart with a lower total energy in your bloodstream from glucose and ketones. And so the left of the chart was low levels of the blood glucose and low levels of ketones. And that was just so fascinating because everybody assumes that the higher the ketones in your blood, you must be burning more fat. And this was the first source I'd ever seen as I was going down the rabbit hole that indicated, you know, no, maybe not what we think. So chasing high ketone levels may actually be a sign that your your metabolic health is not as
0: good as you think it is. I don't know. <laughs> Just something to think about. Yeah. I mean, I keep hearing that as well. and. I think it's very true, but then we
2: see people who are like, "Oh, I'm just trying to get the, you know, these sticks to turn colors," and they're thinking they have to just fast and fast and fast. And so, it's almost like just you know, fast clean until you feel great, and let your body do what it's doing, and trust that good stuff is happening behind the scenes, and you do not have to measure it. <laughs> it's it's
0: just doing something good. Awesome. Oh, and I thought of one more thing. Dr. Mercola said on that podcast. He said taking exogenous ketones during the fast was not a good idea if you were looking for the benefits of fasting, like the health oh, yeah. the health benefits. I forgot why though, there, it, but it was for a reason I had never heard before. It was something about how the, the ketones would create, oh man, well, I guess people will just have to listen to the episode. It was something about some sort of energy substrate they would actually encourage that would actually be tweaking with your body's natural metabolic process and what you were looking to do oh, yeah. health-wise? I believe it. that I've heard Mark Mattson talk about it,
2: also talk about exogenous ketones, and he also recommended against it, and it had something to do with the underlying the metabolic processes.
0: The butyrate that was created or some sort of fatty acid substrate that would be involved. So
2: I actually think it's the manufacturing of the ketones that is important. The fact that our body is making them is important. You can't, circumvent that we don't want to circumvent that
0: yeah so like I said for listeners if you're following us on the Himalaya app we are a Himalaya partnered show which we really really love and if you get that app and you follow the playlist Intermittent Fasting Podcast Stuff We Like there are links there all right oh I do have one quick announcement ooh I can't wait so wrapping this up right now it might be out when this podcast airs I'm not sure. We shall see. So on melanieavalon.com, I have a lot of free guides. And one of them is a food sensitivity guide. And basically, it it's, re- it's really, really popular. It's 300 plus foods. And it shows the content of different natural plant compounds that can create sensitivities in people who are sensitive to those compounds. So probably the one people are most familiar with is histamine. You know, a lot of people were like histamine intolerant. Right. Um, that's common in foods like wine and strawberries and fermented foods. So that's one of them. But it's not just histamine. It's histamine. It's um, salicylates. It's oxalates. People with like kidney stones may have problems with oxalates. It's amines. It's thiols. It's sulfites. Nightshade might have left one out. Um. Yeah. It's lots of things. <laughs> so that's the uh, like a PDF guide I made. It is now going to be in an app. Which I have been developing, actually with Jin's son, Hooray! who is <laughs> super talented, and he's uh, he's like getting it exactly like what I envisioned. Oh, I'm so he's glad! Been, like, and I've been thinking about this app for like years. <laughs> it's basically becoming exactly what I was hoping, and he, so he's amazing. The artist I have is amazing. So when this airs, it might be out. On, I'm not sure. It'll be around this time. Um, so it'll be on iTunes, like, you know, in the iTunes store, the app store. That's really exciting. I think it's going to be really, really helpful. It's funny. Um, So the other day I was talking with a friend and he just recently got diagnosed with kidney stones and he was like, yeah, and there, there are these things called oxalates and now I can't eat oxalates. He was like, what are oxalates? Like, he was like, who knew? And I was like, oh my goodness. Melody that's knew. What my app does. <laughs> and I like, I like pulled up the, the prototype that we were working with and I was like, this is exactly what my app will help you with. And he was like, oh my goodness, I need this app. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, that's just oxalates. So, yeah, it shows everything basically. Well, you know, I had um, a son who was sensitive to
2: salicylates. That's actually oh, yeah. very common in children with ADHD type issues they react to the salicylates in food and it causes behavioral problems. So we had to eliminate those. And oh, it made a difference. Yeah, salicylates are are covered in that app as well. That would have been very helpful. It would have been very helpful. Too bad there were no iPhones
0: or apps or anything like Uh, that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) People who don't tolerate aspirin. Aspirin is actually... Salicylic acid. mm -hmm. Yeah, it's that compound in plants. You can also do things like make your own lists. And it's just really, really easy to quickly look up Foods, And you can kind of be your own detective and try to figure out, you know, if you know that, oh, I react to these foods, you could see what they are high in and maybe look for trends. So, Oh, that's cool. Now, what is your app called? It's going to be called Food Sense. I like it. Ultimately, in the future, I would like it to be able to intuitively try to figure out people's food sensitivities if they put in foods that they're sensitive to. So, down the road, that's what I would like it to do. But right as of right now, it's basically like a searchable catalog. But I, I keep using it I, like the prototype of it. <laughs> oh, good. I like it myself, I'm like, oh, I love this. Well, that's like when he made um, the window
2: app for me. I literally wanted it for me because I was trying to find an app where I could track a fast I mean, not the fast, I tracked my window, but I wanted to track my eating window in a flexible way. And there wasn't one like that. I'm like, you're going to make this for me. Make it exactly. for me. <laughs> and he did. And I was using it. And then he was like, I'm going to sell this. I'm like, whatever. I don't care. I've got it now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my
0: goodness.
2: So- I'm glad you're enjoying it. He's such a good boy. And he turns 21 this Friday, which by the time this airs, he will already
0: be 21. But Oh, wow. I'm glad he said that. I didn't know that. I have to wish him a happy birthday.
2: Yeah. He's, he's just a youngster.
0: All right. Shall we jump into the questions for today? We talked 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 about a lot lot of good fasting stuff, though, you know, a lot of science so far. All right. So, our first question comes from Katie, and the subject is espresso. And Katie says, Hi, Jen and Melanie, love your podcast. I listen to it every morning while I'm getting ready for my day, and I find it very motivating. I just listened to the coffee episode and was hoping to find the answer to this question, but didn't. So, I had to write in because this inquiring mind needs to know. I track my carbs in an app called Carb Manager. One of my favorite things is an iced Americano from Starbucks with a splash of heavy cream. Since clean fasting, I've cut that out during my fasting time, but I'm interested in trying it sans cream. However, my app says it has four carbs for a venti with no cream. It also says a double espresso has eight carbs. No wonder I like them so much. I've searched elsewhere for the carb content and got slightly lower figures but it seems unanimous that espresso has far more carbs than regular coffee. So my question is, with espresso being so high in carbs, shouldn't we be avoiding it during our fasts? And if so, should I always be avoiding using espresso roast coffee when I make my coffee in the morning? I assumed it was just a darker or stronger roast, but the more I think about it, the more I wonder. Does my body know the difference between a shot of espresso and a few cups of coffee made with espresso roast beans? I've been ifing for about six months, but just implemented clean fasting after reading Jen's book a few months ago. I've lost 48 pounds so far, but I'm always looking for ways to speed up the weight loss, as I still have a long way to go. I enjoy a good strong cup of coffee, but if changing the roast of my coffee would help expedite things, I'm prepared to do so. What do you think? sorry, that was a little long winded. Feel free to paraphrase. If you choose this question for your podcast, well, we read all of it. (laughs) She says, thanks for all the hard work and effort you put into your podcasts, books, and Facebook pages. You're definitely changing lives for the better every day. Katie, I looked this up and I mean, I found a lot of lists saying espresso was completely free of carbs. So this was not something I had come across before but in general I'm not seeing a problem with espresso breaking the fast in all honesty and I don't think people really experience that so I know that's not like a very scientific answer but I mean I would encourage you to definitely check out everything that's going into it I know your app is listing carbs for the ones specifically from Starbucks so I don't know if maybe Starbucks is putting in you know, something residual or if that could be a factor. Has anybody mentioned this in your groups before, Jen, or is this completely new?
2: When we look at nutrition labels for any coffee, we do see some calories. And I guess if you have enough of it, you know, it's going to end up with, with the carb content. But we also know that coffee encourages your liver to dump the the stored glycogen, it gets you into ketosis faster, it promotes autophagy. So I think it's one of those trade-off things. You know, if it's just espresso, it's just more concentrated. It's it's the way they brew it. And, and it's just it's just very concentrated. And so when they make an Americano, they make the espresso and then they add water to it but it's, it's brewed differently. So it has a different kind of a flavor and a character versus just a drip coffee. That's the way I understand it. I don't think that there's much of a difference between choosing espresso and choosing coffee in general, because if you go down the rabbit hole of you know coffee itself, you're going to find some carb content and some calorie content there too. If it causes you a problem. If you find that drinking it makes you hungrier afterwards, or if you're not meeting your goals, then you could certainly experiment with leaving it out and see if that makes a difference. There are people who absolutely swear up and down that not having coffee helps them fast easier. And also they lose weight better without the coffee. I've experimented with it. And even before the the coffee experiments I've talked about here on this podcast, you know, in years past, Way before, you know, I had a book and a podcast, I I did experimenting with coffee here and there. And I always have come back to feeling that my weight loss was better and I felt better with the coffee. So, you know, there's so many studies that tie coffee into enhanced fat burning and also increased autophagy. And like I said, it, it may help you get into ketosis more quickly. So... I wouldn't worry about it unless you can tell the difference in your own body, in which case I would say to experiment. How's that?
0: I think that's spot on. All right. Shall we move on to the next
2: question? So we have a question from Stephanie, and the subject is extraneous effects on metabolism. And she says, hi, you ladies have the best podcast. It's super informative and always features interesting, useful, and insightful tidbits. I really appreciate your advice. On that note, because you are so informed with health knowledge, I'm wondering if you have any knowledge of how climate affects weight. For instance, is it better or worse for your metabolism if you live in a warm climate or does this have any effect whatsoever? Also concerning metabolism, do you happen to know if adrenaline speeds it up or do other healthy stress activities also burn fat? I realize these questions are a little bit zany, but I figured you would have the scoop if there is any. Thanks again for the work you girls
0: do. Many thanks, Stephanie. All right, Stephanie, so really really great question there when it goes as far as climate and weather. So I did a lot of research on this and there's two things to consider. There's the idea of, you know, perpetually living in a sort of climate and then there's the idea of, you know, just transiently changing your temperature exposure and how that, you know, affects you compared to baseline if that makes sense. Because I think in general, living in a certain climate long term would encourage a sort of body type to support that climate compared to like being used to one sort of temperature and then temporarily changing the temperature. So what I mean by that is, you know, if we're looking at like populations that that live long term in like the Arctic, you know, they're probably going to be carry more fat, you know, to keep their body warm compared to like people living in the tropics. They're oftentimes leaner, but as far as like the actual studies go and all of that stuff. So there are a lot of studies on cold exposure and how it affects metabolism. I, and I talk about this a lot in a blog post that I posted at melanieavalon.com about the work of Wim Hof and cold exposure. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes, but basically we do find that when people are subjected to you know, cold temperatures. It could be like really intense cold temperature, or it can even be like steady state, just lower temperatures that are like slightly cold, but not, you know, super intolerable. It does increase the metabolism and it, it actually encourages a type of fat, but it is a brown fat that we've talked about before. And that is actually a type of fat that runs on fat. It runs on carbs too, but it's a type of fat that burns fat. So oftentimes people who undergo these cold exposure experiments or people who are living in colder type climates, they'll have more fat, but A, they don't necessarily weigh more because it's displacing other types of fat, but they're going to have a higher metabolism and likely be more metabolically healthy from that fat and less likely to gain excess detrimental forms of fat in the form of white adipose tissue. So, I mean, it's ironic because oftentimes, like one study I was looking at said that, um, It was looking at a month of cold exposure and it found that it improved insulin sensitivity, which is really awesome. It found that they had changes in their metabolic hormones, found that they had an increase in brown fat, but at the same time, it said that there was actually no change in body composition or calorie intake overall. So it's like just, they're becoming more metabolically healthy, but we're not necessarily seeing a huge difference on the scale per se. But I think the takeaway is that like cold exposure, for example, is pretty good for you. Another thing to keep in mind is oftentimes people see the summer as when you're losing weight and the winter as when you're gaining weight because, oh, it's cold, you know, storing weight. When actually, if you're looking at it from a seasonal perspective, when we are in the summer, that's when our body is more likely to be putting on the fat in preparation for the winter. And then in the winter, we have the more fat and we're actually burning that fat. I mean, it's a little bit different now because we live in such air conditioned environments, but it's kind of backwards from what I think a lot of people might think right at the front. Even Ben Greenfield was talking about on another recent podcast. He was saying, I don't remember which one, it, which interview it was, but he was saying that, for example, during the summer, We actually experience higher levels of mTOR, which is going to encourage putting on fat and muscle in preparation for the winter. And in the winter, we experience higher levels of AMPK, which actually encourages more burning of that fat that we stored in the summer. So long story short, climate and temperature, yes, definitely affects our body weight, definitely affects how we use fat. In general, being cold is going to encourage fat burning and using fat as a substrate, whereas being warm is most likely going to encourage possibly putting on fat in preparation for the cold. Yeah, there's a lot there. I think in general the takeaway is that your overall diet is pretty key regardless of the temperature or the exposure. Like I don't think you can temperature yourself. You know, we say that you can't. It's funny. You know, we we will say that um, you can't exercise your way out of a bad diet yeah, I don't think you can temperature yourself out of a bad diet right? temperature yourself out of, you know, food choices that aren't serving you. The overall picture is likely more important, but you can definitely, you know, I think it's good to have a, an awareness of seasonal eating and how the cl- climate and temperature affects your metabolism, how your body's processing fuel, and all the things. So that's my thoughts on climate What are your thoughts on climate and weather?
2: You covered the research pretty well. Some of them were the exact same things that I had planned to say. So for me, one thing that's interesting, this goes back to what you said about food choices. I tend to gravitate towards different foods in the winter. And maybe this is why, you know, people may tend to put on weight in the winter. Of course, we're not as active if it's cold. But I tend to gravitate towards heavier foods in the winter. Whereas in the summer, I tend to gravitate towards lighter foods. And so I always have had a little bit of winter, not weight gain, but I feel a little puffier in the winter. And then I lean out a little bit in the summer, you know, even now, not that I'm gaining weight over the winter, but I just, you know, oh, there's a little, my jeans are not as, <laughs> after, the, after the holidays even too. But I think it's a lot of the foods we may choose to eat. The foods that appeal, I know to me are different. So that's just something to keep in mind. I don't know that I really added anything to that
0: conversation, but there you go. No, I mean that's really important. I didn't. Yeah, I didn't even mention that. I think mean, that's huge as well.
2: I don't even want to eat like a salad or the cold watery vegetable type foods in the winter. Yeah. Like I I don't want them at all. You know, I'm I'm wanting to eat, you know, big hearty substantial things. That's just what I'm drawn to whereas as you know, and when it starts to warm up, I want to drink a little kombucha and have a little guacamole and maybe some fruit.
0: exactly it's different. I, I do think seasonal eating, I do think it's probably best for us in general to eat you know seasonally, which we don't really sometimes we don't do as much anymore, just because of the perpetual nature of our food supply system. right? Yeah, and then so Stephanie's question about adrenaline.
2: Well, there are many things that do affect our metabolic rate. And yes, you know, adrenaline is is something that's released when we're um, under stress. You know, we have the whole fight or flight response to something. And, you know, yeah, that may give you a little jolt of your metabolic rate. But again, as Melanie was saying, with the cold temperature, it's not one of those things that you're going to want to manipulate on purpose. You know, during the fast, there are all sorts of counter-regulatory hormones that our bodies upregulate, and they do tend to give us a a slightly raised metabolism during the fast, and that's what what we like. That's one of the benefits of the fasting time. And so, you know, the research has shown us that. So we really can't do anything to, like, say, oh, I'm going to raise my adrenaline and, <laughs> and raise my metabolism. But just know that while you're fasting, these good things are happening in your
0: body. Yes. I know you're going to have a lot of science to add to this one. I, I do. So it's kind of ironic because in the short term, the release of adrenaline actually does everything you would want in a way to burn fat. It lowers appetite, increases your metabolism, and that's because it, it's prepping your body, like like Jen said, the fight or flight mode to respond to, you know, something that requires energy at that moment intensely. So if you're in a situation where you're having a lot of adrenaline, your body's not going to want to deal with eating. It's going to want to run off of energy it already has. So appetite's going to drop. You're going to have an increase of metabolism. So you think it'd be really, really great in general for, you know, burning fat and everything. The problem is that we often have this stress response mobilized in our current world all the time, you know, so it's like we get these chronic stressors and we're, we're responding right. to the, you know, traffic and our interpretations of things and we're having this constant acute stress and ironically while in the short term it can increase fat burning and lower appetite in the long term it can create downstream hormones that your I mean your body wants to compensate for using those calories. So in the long term it can lead to increased Weight gain. Right. So basically, we don't want to live in a constant state of adrenaline because it's going to make our body do counter mechanisms to make up for that chronic stress. It's a balance. Yeah, exactly. So, like, it can lead to, you know, overconsumption of foods later, especially if they're, you know, super palatable. So, you don't want to be relying on stress hormones to burn fat in the long term. Right. I did find a really interesting study, though, Jen, and it was looking at how many calories were burned from the adrenaline released while watching horror movies. Oh, that's interesting. So basically, they had people watch like 90 minutes of different horror movies, and they tested them to see how many calories they burned. I think the average was around 113 calories <laughs> burned. That was an increase, as you're saying, it mm-hmm. was an
2: increase in 113 over baseline? Yeah, from watching the movie. But then again, you don't want to do that all the time or it's going to freak your body out. You I know. Wanna, you know, if you watch them all every day, there's like a balance. I was just using this as an example of the calories that are... Burning. No, but that, that goes back to your other point about don't, you don't want it to be chronic. Like
0: if we were living in The Walking Dead. Exactly. (laughs) I wish The Walking Dead was on here. What was the movie? So the movie that burned the most calories was The Shining. It burns 184 calories. Jaws burned 161. (laughs) The Exorcist burned 158. Alien 152. Saw 133. Nightmare on Elm Street 118. Paranormal Activity. I thought Paranormal Activity would be like at the top. But it was 111, Blair Witch Project 105, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 107.
2: Yes. The Shining, can I tell you a story about that from when I was a little girl? Mm -hmm. I mean, I probably was a teenager even. I don't think I was a little girl. But the commercials would come on TV for that movie. And like I would be too scared to just watch the commercials. And it would give me nightmares. Just the commercial for The Shining. He's like running through the hedges or something. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to die. Just watching the commercial. So I believe it. I'm like have adrenaline rush just now thinking about it. <laughs> that book is amazing. I've read the book. The book didn't didn't make me as scared as that visual.
0: Good times with Stephen King.
2: Yeah. That's great. I love that research. That's fun. But no, we're not recommending that you <laughs> do this because there's gonna come a point when your body might view it as start viewing it as chronic stress. So I guess our takeaway is. Yeah, certain things may cause a boost in metabolic rate, but we can't really manipulate them because your body will then, you know, kind of adjust to it or perceive it as chronic stress and then it's like counterproductive. Right. So just
0: live your best life. Live your best life. Yep, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Fast, eat, repeat. <laughs> All right. So our next question comes from May. The subject is those last stubborn pounds. And May says... Hi, I'm a 43 year old mom of three who works night shifts as an ER doctor. I decided to do keto slash IF back in December of 2017 for the weight and the damage I did to myself via the HCG diet. I lost the first 40 pounds pretty quickly, but since April, I've been fluctuating up and down five pounds. If I extend my fast past 24 hours, I lose them only to gain them back. Once I resume eating, it doesn't even matter that I stopped doing keto as of last July after reading delay. Don't deny I feel like I'm in maintenance, but I have 25 pounds to go. Any insight on how to break through my plateau? I found that rigorous exercise is inflammatory for me at this time and will either cause me to get ill or injured. I really love your books, ladies, and I've pre-ordered your What When Wine Audible, Melanie, and I can't wait to hear it. Thanks for your support. So yeah, that's a little bit of an older question because What When Wine is now available. <laughs> yep. Yep.
2: It's October of 2017. This has been oh, wow. in the hopper for a while, and it finally
0: made it to the stop. Sorry, May. So, guys, if your if your question hasn't been answered, there is a chance. <laughs> now, this is this is
2: funny because I know who May is. She's in my Facebook group, and so just this week, May posted something in the group that said, well, I have a confession to make. I kind of thought all of you talking about the health benefits of IF was the consolation prize you sold to us non-goal waiters in the group. Until today, I got some blood work done at my primary care physician's office. My thyroid, which has been an enigma for endocrinologists for the last 11 years, finally is within the normal range. So happy. Hemoglobin A1C, while never high, is even lower than it was when I was a vegan. Overall, I guess it is the health plan with the side effect of weight loss. As Jen says, I guess my body wants to heal on the inside and I want to look like I'm ready to watch the bay this summer. So I thought that was a fun follow-up because so often we don't have a follow-up to the questions, but that was just posted within the past week by May in my Facebook group. So sorry, May, that it's taken us so long to get to your question from October of 2017. But we can see, you know, she's having a lot of health benefits going on at the same time. And, you know, we look at all the things that May was talking about back in October of 17. You know, she did the HCG diet and she was fluctuating up and down, you know, the five pounds. And then she had been doing keto and then stopped doing that. And her body was just really stuck and, May, I also love that you got sucked into that HCG diet too. I talk about this in Delay, Don't Deny. You know, I got sucked into that myself and I had a whole lot of trouble coming back after that. I mean, I really think that did a number on my metabolism and it was after the HCG diet that I did the first time back in. Gosh, 2008, 2009, that was when after that is when I really climbed and got to my highest weight of 210 pounds. And I really think that a lot of my struggles were a result of the damage that that did to my metabolism. So God bless us, all of us who tried so hard with these these different diets. So I'm really glad to share the follow-up that May is doing well health-wise And, you know, when we've been through these very restrictive programs, we do have to give our bodies time to start to trust us again. And I'm really glad that May is so healthy and all of her numbers are looking better.
0: Yeah, so that's that's really wonderful. So what would you have said to May back when she asked this question? I would have said to her at that time, that I
2: totally understand where she's coming from because I was there myself with the HCG and the um, the metabolic damage that I believe. I mean, I, I didn't have my metabolism measured, you know. I don't have data. I just know what happened. I did it. I lost weight. And then my body rebounded like a slingshot, like to a point that I'd never even dreamed of being before. You know, if that's not metabolic damage, then I don't know what is. And honestly, the years that I gave up after that, I was just like, forget it. I'm just going to be really big now. And I just ate without... You know, I just ate with with no boundaries and got bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, that may have really actually been the thing I needed to do to help my metabolism, those giving up years. So obviously, that's not <laughs> what we want to recommend. Just give up for a few years, get really obese, and then maybe your body will finally be ready to release the weight. That's what happened with me. But I would recommend for someone who suspects they may have metabolic damage like that to give an alternate day fasting protocol a try an up day down day approach that I talk about in, in the up day down day chapter of delay, don't deny, because I think that gives your body, you know, the, the fasting time, you know, maybe you're doing a 36 to 42 hour fast followed by an eating window of, you know, 12 hours or you know, eight hours on your up day, where you're really eating a lot of food to the point that the research that they've done on this protocol even has the people eating you know, over a hundred percent of their quote maintenance calories. So you're not trying to eat at your quote maintenance target. You're trying to well not trying to eat above it, but the people that they studied were eating above, you know, their metabolic rate number of calories that would have allowed them to maintain their weights. So they were eating above that. So the pattern of the fasting days interspersed with the higher calorie days kept their body, you know, they were able to burn the fat on the fasting days, but then the up days, let their bodies know, oh, we're okay, there's plenty of food. And so they were able to upregulate, you know, the metabolic rate instead of having it go down. That would be my number one suggestion for anybody who feels like they may have damaged their metabolism over time with the very restrictive diets. I really think that all those things that I did, you know, the, the giving up for years and the gaining all the weight and just eating all the time, I think that may have actually helped me in the long run undo some of that metabolic damage.
0: Yeah, and then something I wanted to focus on for her question was she said that, like, she found that rigorous exercise was inflammatory and caused her to get ill or oh yeah, injured. And so that was something I wanted to, like, just talk about for listeners. Because I think a lot of times that people think exercise has to be this, like, really intense thing, you know? And so if you're not, like, doing it, you know, like, it, it can Go seem hard like, or go home. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. When, actually, I think for a lot of people, the most beneficial forms of exercise are in a way like nourishing forms of exercise, (laughs) you know, like, like yoga or just, you know, having like a nice, you know, relaxing walk, maybe especially like at the end of your fast, where you're really in that fat burning state, like exercise doesn't have to be inflammatory and intense and it doesn't have to be CrossFit doesn't have to be high intensity interval training. It can be just, you know, movement throughout the day and just encouraging more movement and lifting heavy things, you know, just naturally in life. And so I think people write that off as like, not quote exercise when actually that could help you in a way burn through those last stubborn pounds, because it's not going to necessarily create like an intense panicky, like we're talking about chronic stress It might not create that rebound or that um, compensatory effect in your body trying to recover from the the acute stress of exercise if you can do it in a more, you know, gentle way for your body. Exactly. And, you know, it is a stress and it can be one of those stresses that freaks
2: your body out. And especially if you've been doing this hard, hard dieting and now you're doing this hard, hard exercise, your body's like, oh, my God, we had a famine and a war and now we're running to escape. And then it just it's not a good state to be in.
0: Yeah. And Just in general, the concept of those last stubborn pounds, I will say though, I think a really good way, and I talk about this in my book, What When Wine, is because I have a section on burning through stubborn weight and um, has a lot of tips and tricks and little fun things you can try. But in general, I think one of the best ways to really blast through stubborn fat is this is not gentle exercise, but doing something like more intense, like high intensity interval training or something when you're really deep into a fast like into your fasting window because then you're in fat burning state, there's you have to be burning fat basically. And if you do, you know, some brief intense exercise, you might be more likely to really burn, you tap into those stubborn fat stores. And even since then, I didn't talk about this in the book because it wasn't on my radar as much then. But since then I'm thinking if you maybe did some smart hacks like using red light therapy to maybe target certain areas to break down those fat cells and release the fat for fuel at the end of a fast and then do that exercise at that time. I think that could be a way to actually target quote, stubborn fat stores. So just something I've been thinking about. All right. Very interesting. Red light would be another thing just in general, <laughs> a, a gentle healing way to encourage fat burning. So juve, if, if you have a juve, which um, we love yep. juves. Absolutely. I'm really enjoying my juve. Okay. Oh, I just say really quickly, I started putting my juve – because I have this um this weird feeling that I've always had in my ab ever since I did an ab – I mean, it was like years ago, like four years ago. I was doing sit-ups or something, and I think I pulled some muscle, and ever since then, I've been feeling it. And I, I used to think it was related to my digestion, but more and more, I think I'm realizing it's like a pulled muscle, and that's what some doctors have said. I started putting my the juve go, like the little, the little juve on that area – I'm kind of shocked. It's like going away. Oh, wow. The feeling and like the pain. I mean, I'm like the biggest proponent of Juve, but I was like, oh, this is actually like really working. Because I, <laughs> I hadn't used it to like target a specific muscle or anything like that, which a lot of people use it for exercise recovery. So I was kind of That's shocked. very cool. I mean, I shouldn't have been shocked because I know how well it works. But um, yeah, I will say for listeners, if you would like to get a Juve, if you go to juve.com slash podcast. And use the code IFPODCAST. They will send you a free gift with that. But yeah, well, we did not get to everything for today. But these questions have been really, really wonderful. And a few things for listeners before we go. So these show notes for this podcast... Go to ifpodcast.com slash episode 103. That's where we will put links to all the studies, anything that we talked about that we liked, just all of the information. You can also go to ifpodcast.com slash stuff we like. That's where we put links to all of these stuff that we like. Lots of lots of stuff there. Real quick, Melanie,
2: I think I've just figured out that that date of October of 17 from May's question is wrong. I think that was October of 18. Instead, it says 17 on the date. But that doesn't make any sense unless she time traveled because she was talking about December of 2017. And she wouldn't be talking about doing keto and IF in December of 17 on a question she submitted oh. in October of 17. So I think we have a typo. So y'all, I think then instead of being a question from October of 2017. It's a question from October of 2018. And I just wanted to put that out in case it was confusing. Okay, perfect. Because I was confused and I'm like, wait, something's wrong. And then that that's what it was. Because I don't think she wrote the question in October of 2017, then time traveled to December of 2017 and back and forth.
0: Yeah. If listeners are wondering, oh, do we actually read every question? This is how you know, because yes, <laughs> because I I literally read every single question. I literally copy and paste it into a different document so that it's all organized so that I can look through, you know, have records of everything. And so sometimes I might copy over the wrong date. Yeah, I, I think that's just a typo. So we all make typos and that is okay. So, yeah. and, it, and if you're wondering what happens with your questions, I read them all. I copy them all. I log them all. <laughs> Guys, there are a lot of questions. (laughs) There are. Um, They're coming. They're coming. Maybe not quite
2: two years later, or like we just thought with this one, but sorry.
0: I know. Because I've been thinking, I'm like, what if we had like an assistant who would, you know, read all the questions? And then I was like, oh, but then I wouldn't have read all the questions. Oh, yeah. We don't (laughs) want that. We got to read them ourselves. We got to be able to look at them. I know.
2: I read them too when they come in because they come to me too. And I'm like,
0: and sometimes I'll say, let's get this one on. I'm always really curious because every now and then, in a blue moon, general randomly respond to like a question. I'm always wondering like why? Yeah. Usually they involve like clean fasting.
2: <laughs> I don't want them to have to wait five months to get the answer to, can I drink wine during my fast? <laughs> so I feel like I could just shoot them a quick, no, please don't do that. Because I want them to get the benefits of the fasting. So yeah, well, I'll answer yeah. if it's something I feel like they got to know right now. She
0: might answer. I might answer. They don't, don't start using that little trick, people. Yeah, I know. <laughs> If you want Jen to personally answer, send in a clean fasting, and she might answer. <laughs> I might, but really,
2: it's just because I'm like, you know, this person needs to know the answer right now, and we'll, you know, that doesn't mean we're not going to get to it on the show. But, you know, well, like, yeah, like there was one this week about wine, and it was, and I thought it was important for them to know that right now
0: because a listener wrote in asking because we had a, a special episode with Todd White at Dry Farm Wines, and he was talking about using wine. And being in ketosis, I think I need, I need to re-listen to that episode because the, the listener that wrote in was saying that he was saying that wine didn't break as fast. But I think what he was mostly referring to was he was saying he stayed in a ketogenic state. Yeah, I think so too. I think that's what I remember when he tests his ketones while drinking the dry farm wines that he's still ketotic, which interestingly, another side note. Um, I listened to a Ben Greenfield, oh my goodness, I'm like a Ben Greenfield fangirl now. I'd listened to a podcast on alcohol specifically, and they were talking about alcohol and ketosis. And interestingly, how maybe the substrates of alcohol could, in theory, it, it made sense with what Todd White was saying. Would boost ketosis? Yeah, in a way. Just because of the substrates that are created from alcohol compared to like the ketotic state was pretty interesting. Oh, by
2: the way, I'm waiting on a shipment from Dry Farm Wines. Actually, two. I'm super excited. You know, I keep drifting back and forth because there's the part of me that really wants good, clean wine. And then there's the part of me that likes to buy an $8 bottle of Prosecco at Costco because it's $8 and I like that price. (laughs) But I just really notice a difference of how I feel with the higher quality wine. So I've got their sparkling collection is coming and I've got just a regular shipment on the way and I'm really excited. So
0: hooray for Dry Farm Wines. It definitely makes a huge difference. And if you go to dryfarmwines.com slash IF podcast, you get a bottle for a penny with your first order. So yeah.
2: But yeah, I'm really excited for the shipment to come because I, like I said, I go back and forth. And whenever I go back to the eight dollar bottle of wine, I'm like, oh, why? Why am I drinking this? And yeah, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm
0: a Dry Farm Wines girl for life. So yeah. Okie dokie. Well, this has been awesome. Do you have any final thoughts, Jim, before we go? No, I think we got to a lot of really interesting things today. I know. A lot of good, a lot of good discussion. It's definitely becoming more and more out there that the fasting, you know, like the discussion and everything. Oh, yeah. Cause fasting, fasting is so mainstream now. The people are doing it. I think the high performing people are doing it. That's what I'm seeing. You're right. The Twitter founders, (laughs) you know, like like the people who are like really rocking their life. Right. Oh, yeah. They seem, not that everybody's not rocking their life, but, you know, high performance people seem to really gravitate oftentimes towards time-restricted type eating approaches. Well,
2: because everyone realizes how it boosts, you know, your performance, the way you feel and and just everything about it just fits in with that whole biohacking high performance lifestyle. Hooray for intermittent fasting. And
0: and we, the early adopters. <laughs> I know. I know. Uh, I tell you, even like things like the whole carnivore diet, I'm like, guys, I've been like interested in that for like a decade. Right. Like like, like people act like this, this, it's this new thing. And I was like, I totally did that experiment for like a year. You did. You were eating rotisserie chicken only. Isn't that what you were eating?
2: Mm-hmm. Dipped mm-hmm. in coconut oil.
0: Yeah. So the carnivore people would say that the coconut oil had to go, but. Oh. I was like, this has been, I've, I've been, I've been doing it. I, rem- I remember the first time I got my keto strips, like forever ago. The times. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, the opinions we discussed on this show do not constitute medical advice. We're not doctors. Check out ifpodcast.com for more information on us. Theme music
1: was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.